Gokwan, MBE, TV host, DJ, stylist, chef, author, I could go on. Most people would find presenting live on national TV in front of millions of people daunting. How about live streaming to millions of people on social media or DJing in front of thousands at a festival? And most people probably would pass it the chance thinking they're not qualified to be there. Often the common signs of imposter syndrome that we all experience every single day. And so does God. But he tells us how he overcomes imposter syndrome and he calls it finding the fear. As he reflected on everything he's achieved in his career, he thinks back to his personal struggles when he was younger, describing himself as the really frightened, fat, gay, mixed-race boy at school. And he had two choices. Face the fear of spending the rest of your life feeling like this, or find the fear and find opportunities to achieve incredible things. You can probably guess which one he chose. We talk about sliding doors moments and how one decision to drop out of drama school led to his career as a stylist, a national TV host and a DJ. And Gok talks really passionately about knowing your audience and it really reminded me of our conversation with Simon Dunmore, the founder of Defected and Glitterbox. And Gok has got such an innate understanding of his audience and I honestly believe this is his superpower. And I think it's the secret to his success across so many different industries. He talks about being a waiter in his dad's restaurant and how no matter what hat he's wearing, he always thinks about the people on that table and how they're going to feel. He's also the most genuine and authentic person I've ever met. There's no PR bullshit. There's no rehearsed lines. He's honest, he's vulnerable and he's self-reflective. To this day, he's still finding things that he can improve on after every TV appearance, after every DJ set, and we find out why sweating the small stuff counts. We also find out how to get 1.2 million people to tune into your live stream, how we navigate social media, being in the public eye, and whether Gokwan the brand is the same as Gokwan the person. I think I say this every week, but this might be my favourite episode yet. Maybe a close contender with my hero, Simon Dunmore. But I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Gokwan, MBE. How does that sound? <laughs> Mental. Crazy. <laughs> Still haven't got quite got my head around it. I'm doing the Jubilee on Sunday. Uh, part of the pageant and I put on Instagram today should I wear my MBE because it's been stored in the safe since I've had it and I'm, I'm still slightly embarrassed about it if I'm really honest it's um it's a it's a real honor to have uh, but it's just a bit surreal because it doesn't you know those things don't happen to people like me so that was awarded for services to fashion and, and social awareness yeah uh, when did you first find out that you were going to receive an MBA? So we got a message uh, late 2019 to say um, that, you know, if you were offered an MBE, would you accept it? That's kind of the first thing that you hear from them. And then I was in Panto um, in Cardiff uh, playing the fairy godmother. So I was dressed in a full silver lame outfit um, about to go on stage when um, it all gets announced that you know you're you're part of the Queen's New Year's Honours 
and you're receiving an MBE, and you, then it's at that point you find out what it's for. Up until then, you have no idea at all. So it could be for crimes to fashion, it could be uh, for eating too much Chinese food, it could be for anything. And at that point, you kind of find out. And I suppose because it's a double hander, because it's with services to fashion, which I kind of get, I've worked in fashion for you know two decades now, well over two decades. Uh, but the social awareness bit is, I, I guess, the bit that means the most because it means that you've made a difference and it also, all the hard work that you put in to, you know, charity work and kind of fundraising and doing, you know, other social awareness stuff, the, the stuff that people don't get to see because in my job, everything is very public. It's very much on show. So people know where you are, what you're doing, what you're eating, who you're eating with, but they don't, but a lot of people don't realize the amount of work that you do behind the camera um, to raise social awareness. So for LGBTQ plus, you know, working with Stonewall, working with Prince's Trust, working with lots of different charities over the years. And so it felt really, really humbling to get it for the social awareness. That's brilliant. And does that come with any, um, you know, any added responsibility? Does it change things or do you still continue with all of the social awareness? Oh, yeah, not really, I guess. And I, I suppose it doesn't really change you as a, as a person because you just continue to do what you do anyway. And well, that's, that's kind of my philosophy, really. I've always been quite headstrong and I've always been very, very focused. And if I feel that I can make a positive difference, then I will do my utmost to get there and do that. Um, and so, so nothing's really changed from that degree. I guess a little bit of responsibility because you kind of go, oh, okay then, so what does that mean to everybody else then? And you have to kind of question uh, what that is um, but like that this Sunday for instance wearing uh, wearing the medal whatever you would call it medal badge emblem whatever you want to call it wearing that on Sunday I guess that feels quite showy and for me I'm really embarrassed about it but I'm gonna do it because when else do you get to wear it? <laughs> oh no everyone's got an MBE <laughs> Um, and I guess you, you were awarded that in between everything else that you've been doing. So that's everything from DJ, uh, producing tunes, radio, cooking, fashion, all yeah. that. You name it, you've you've done it. But I think... Um, <laughs> that makes me sound like a massive slut. <laughs> <laughs> Career slut. <laughs> Career slut. I mean, that's what I am. Do you know what? It's, it's never been described. I mean, people call me a polymath, but I think I'm going to go with career slut now. Yeah, I like it. I like that too. <laughs> I think the um the angle between fashion and music is is really really interesting. I know um I guess fashion and and being a stylist is is what you were most known for to begin with. But I do believe yeah. music came first before that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, actually, the similarity between the two jobs is quite remarkable because I am a stylist first, then designer. So I do design, and I've you know designed women's wear collections for many years now, but predominantly my job is to be a stylist. So as a stylist, it's my job to take a client and to talk to them and understand them and understand how they want to present themselves, whether that's for a red carpet, a magazine, a makeover for a real, you know, for, for what we call a real person, which is a terrible term really, but um, a makeover on somebody. And then I use other people's designs and I put them together in a way um, to present them. And if you think about from a DJ point of view, it's very similar because you take an audience, so whether that's a festival or a club or a party or a corporate, whatever you're doing, and you talk to them first of all, you understand what they want to dance to, what they want to listen to, you understand their demographic, you know, probably when they first listened to house music and, you know, what kind of decade was that in. Then what I do is I take other people's music and I put it together in a form that is 
slightly different from its original production, which is exactly the same as styling. So for me, it become, it's, it's really natural. It's natural to do that and it's natural to present something. Um, but I guess music, came, of course music came before fashion because I've always listened to music. And when I was younger, um, my parents owned restaurants and so the music we'd only ever listened to was the music that we played in the restaurant. So I grew up listening to Nat King Cole, Elaine Page, Matt Monroe, The Carpenters, you know, this kind of, re my parents' taste in music. And it wasn't really until I hit probably around 13 that I formed my own taste in music. And at that time, it was at the beginning of, of the house music culture. It was Acid House then. It was the beginning of all of that. And so all of a sudden, I, I started hearing this music, which was, in, having said that, that's a, that's a slight lie, because prior to that, it was people like Bross, and, you know, I would started to hear pop music, but I wasn't really into it, didn't really get it, didn't really understand it. And I understood that I should like it because my peers and my contemporaries at school liked it, but it wasn't really my style. Um, and then all of a sudden I discovered house music and it was like, what is this? This is incredible. This makes me feel like I'm happy. This makes me want to dance. This makes me want to be around people. Um, I understand this. I was fascinated with bass lines. I was absolutely fascinated with the melodies. And, and I loved the idea that house music was so variable. I mean, you, know, you had your ambient house, your acid house, you had you know all these different styles. And I, it was almost as if, I just discovered the biggest box of chocolates. I'd never eaten chocolate before. I knew what it was, I'd heard about it, but I'd never eaten it. And once I tried it, it was like, I cannot get enough of this. I'm now already addicted after my first bite. And with fashion and culture, it sounds like there's, there's such a similarity in, in the understanding of culture and trends and kind of where yeah. they start and, and you know how you find them. Is that is that any different from your early stages to now when you're looking for trends in, in fashion and, and trends in music? Um not really. I guess I guess I've always been I've always been very strong with my own personal taste. And so I've always been able to turn around and go, I really appreciate this. So if, if it's a certain type of fashion, so for instance, if it was kind of disconnected, Asian inspired tailoring, if I like this, then I'm gonna tell the world that I like this. And so I've always been very confident with my own sense of taste. And that's with food, because I also cook, but that's also with, with music as well. And so if I, I, I'm not constantly looking for the latest track, I'm not constantly looking for the latest designer or who's coming up through the ranks now. I am just constantly looking to be inspired and that can be from any angle. That can be from, uh, you know, 60 years ago, or it could be a track that was released in 2002. It doesn't bother me. If I love it, then I want to share it. Then I want everyone to listen to it or wear it or eat it, depending on what that job is I'm doing that day. And have you found social media has changed that um, perception of, of trend as well, particularly with, uh, particularly with fashion? Is that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sped everything up. Everything is so quick now. So years ago, when I was when I first started out as a stylist, we would have press appointments, and we would go into every single press office, and a press uh, an agency would look after you know a handful of different brands, and so we'd be slapping around all of the, the the press houses, and then we'd be going in store to look for stuff, and then every now and again you'd hear of a new designer come up, so you'd go over to their workshop, and but now so that was all done very very physically, so there was a because of space and time, everything was quite a drawn out process. 
And so you would be prepping for days and days and days before you did the job. Nowadays, because of social media, you've only got to literally pick up your handset and you are uh, then completely, um, uh, you can see everyone, you can see what everyone's doing and it is immediate, but there is a sense of speed that comes with that because then there are now so many more brands, so many more new designers, so many new things happening. And, and I don't know whether, I don't know whether trends, yeah, trends do exist still, but it is so transient, it's so quick now, whereas before we had seasons and it was kind of the big designers that dictated what was going on. Nowadays, it's kind of up to the people, really. Mm. And if you look back in, you know, when you reflect back to your early stages of your careers in, in music and, and fashion, was, was there mm. a moment when you felt like you'd broke through a barrier or you felt like that I'm, I'm here now, I've made it, I'm kind of, I'm on the right track? Do you know what? Yeah, yes, there is actually. It was, um, I, re- I remember, so so I originally started out in fashion as a, as a makeup artist and I um, didn't know how to do makeup. I didn't know how to do hair. I blagged my way into the industry. I got myself an agent who's still currently my agent after all these years. She didn't know that I'd completely lied to join the agency and, and given her a massive cock and bull story. But I was so determined and I thought, you know what, I've got very little to lose here because if I get found out that I'm not a makeup artist, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, I just go and get another job somewhere else. I was quite fearless as a kid. And so I so I kind of taught myself on the job. And I guess it was when I could then afford to go for dinner and I could afford to go for a drink or I could afford to have a holiday. And that money was earned from my new job being a makeup artist because prior to that I'd always struggled I'd always kind of jumped from job to job I hadn't really found my focus I didn't know what I was doing I was you know working in bars and restaurants and clubs and just doing whatever I could to scrape together my rent and stuff and then all of a sudden I maybe about six months to a year into doing the hair and makeup and starting to get regular bookings that I was like oh hold on a second so this is what a real job feels like what you do is you work really hard and then you get paid for it at the end of it you get paid all right and you can afford to pay your bills it was a new concept to me I hadn't really worked it out and that's really probably what gave me my focus because I thought I like this feeling I like this feeling of stability and I don't mind working really hard at something that I enjoy doing and in in return for that I'm gonna have a lifestyle that I want. And did you have any mentors in those early days or anyone that was guiding you through this or did you very much yeah no I did I so so I worked as a makeup artist I worked with a stylist called Linda Leeming who sadly passed away a few years ago and she I'd met her and I was doing lots and lots of makeup for her and it was on one of her shoots actually that I um that I assisted her styling that I fell in love with the roll of clothes and at that point I decided that it wasn't makeup for me that it was the industry I love the industry I love the people the models the photographers the art directors I love all these people um, but actually maybe I could be better at this other job. And so she taught me how to do a press appointment. She taught me how to talk to a client. She taught me, you know, how to put together, not necessarily how to put together clothing and looks, because that's something that I think you have to do personally. But she taught me everything, all the logistics behind that, which is a massive proportion of the job of being a stylist. It's not just choosing gorgeous dresses and nice accessories. It's all the mechanics and business and all of that stuff behind. And she taught me, so she was a massive mentor, but actually my agent as well, who's still my agent, Carol, 
um, has been a great inspiration to me. She's worked in fashion for years, and prior to that, she worked in music, believe it or not. So she was at, she was a PR for all the clubs back in the day, so Taboo, WAG, all of those clubs. And she, if you didn't know Carol, you didn't get into the club. And she was with Steve Strange and Marilyn and George and all them lot. And so she and so she just always inspires me because I just see her determination and I see her drive. And yes, yeah, so, so from a mixture of different people. And when did music come back into the mix then? Like, did it have to take a backseat while you focused on? Music never left me, really. I still, still loved music. I still loved the clubs. And, you know, I was really heavy on the Vauxhall scene back in the day. And there was a club night that um, that used to happen, or a club day session that used to happen called SHD, Sunday Happy Day. And it was a, it was a gay party at Century Club in central London. And... It was the only place that I went to where I literally loved every single track and the DJs on there would be playing these kind of remixes of the old 90s tunes and all the big vocal house stuff, that was, which is my passion, which is what I love the most about house music. And, I, and so I would go and visit this club, this day party, which was once a month, once, once every couple of months, and just kind of live my old raver's dream. And so it never, ever left. It's just that I didn't focus in on it because I was too busy building my fashion career and everything else. And and then much further on, um, so so then TV happens and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, it never really left me. And then towards the ending of my straight up styling career before I went on to television I started getting booked in music and so I was doing you know kind of music videos for Ministry of Sound I was doing working with the All Saints I was working with Erasure wet 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 so all of a sudden I find myself in the music industry but as a stylist and I was doing other jobs as well but then I was able to marry this this huge love of mine which was fashion and makeup and, and art direction and glamour and all of that stuff. And now suddenly I'm in the music industry and they want all of that as well. And so I was like a pig in shit. I could now have all of it. And it was, it was, it was amazing because I, I got to see the mechanics of the music industry very much from the promo point of view, not from record releasing or anything like that, um, or even from events, but just from the idea of this is how you present music. This is what, this is what everyone sees, what the listener sees. Um, and it was, yeah, it was amazing. And then much further on after that, I, I then obviously start DJing. And it was, it was a bit like an epiphany. Like when I found the rail on that shoot working with Linda and I looked through the rail and I saw the clothes and I thought, I understand this, I get this. It was exactly the same thing with dropping my first track and, and, and understanding what the kit feels like. And, and obviously the terror, the terror of going out to your first audience. And from that, I guess, with that musical journey, then it seems like you've layered that on with uh, radio, with producing tunes, you've did the Isolation Nation streams in, in lockdown, and that's led to a compilation that you've then released on, on Defected. Was was there ever, have you ever had an end goal in mind when you started out doing all of this, or do you kind of no, throw yourself no. into the thing that's in, next in front of you? Yeah, I, I can't imagine what it doesn't feel like to have an ambition. I've always been so ambitious. I've always wanted... Um, to try everything and give everything a go and just to, I guess, be good. I've always wanted to be good. I, I kind of beat myself up a lot. I've always got a little bit of imposter syndrome. I always worry that, you know, am I good enough? And even though I work really, really hard at every single thing I do, I... Um, I guess, I guess that gives me my drive, that gives me my ambition. So I can't imagine 
you know, I, I said many, many years ago when I first started DJing, you know, I'm going to play Ibiza and I'm going to play Glastonbury. And then this year I'm playing Amnesia and I'm playing Glastonbury. And so it's just, you know, that is incredible, but that doesn't mean that this journey is over. It just means that what I've done is I've now hit one of the marks and now what's the, ne- what's the next thing that I can do after that? I really, you know, I really want to want to produce a track that everyone loves and I want it to be massively successful and then I want to work with different artists and you know and I want to be on the bill with you know with DJs that really inspire me that I love listening to so all those things so it doesn't ever stop it's it's continual and it goes on and it is such a difficult cross to bear because I'm knackered (laughs) well now that you've ticked Glastonbury and, and Ibiza off the list what's what's next oh what is next I mean I I'd I'd love to get I'd love I've just done a new track that I have been playing out on my live streams that absolutely everyone goes nuts for. And I have been playing it in different parties and stuff and everyone goes crazy for it. And I would love for it to be a huge hit. I'd love everyone to hear it and enjoy it and want to dance to it. And and I I think it's really good. And it's being released on um, Defected, which is, which is amazing. And they've signed it. And so fingers crossed that will be the next thing. And then who knows after that? Who knows? Maybe a, a residency on planet Mars. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, can you get, can you get me on the guest list? <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> I, fi- I find it so interesting talking to people who have such an innate desire to throw themselves into new scenarios and new challenges, and you know, yeah. do the best to kind of come out on top every time. And you mentioned that. The idea of imposter syndrome, which is an interesting one, isn't it? Because you, by by definition, when you by throwing yourself into new scenarios, you, you don't know what you're doing because it's new. You've not done it before, and it's it's inevitable yeah. to feel like that. Do you, when you catch yourself feeling things like imposter syndrome, is there is there a line that you draw with that? Is the you know how do you approach throwing yourself into a new challenge that you've not done before and giving yourself the confidence to know that you can do it? Yeah, do you know what I? I kind of there's a couple of things that happen. And just to give you a bit of background on that, which you may find really interesting, you may find as dull as shit. But when I was younger, I, I genuinely didn't think I would amount to anything. And that wasn't just my opinion. It was the opinion of people around me. People told me, you know, you're you know, you're going to be unsuccessful. You, you know, you, you're ugly, you're fat, you're gay, you're, you know, all of these things. And, and it, it was such a tough time growing up that I started to really believe what people said to me. And I and I genuinely thought I'm not going to amount to anything. And it wasn't until I was in my late teens that I decided that I was going to change that. And I set myself one of the biggest challenges ever, which is I auditioned for a huge, very successful, very important drama school. And I got a place. And it was the 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 feeling of getting into the Central School of Speech and Drama was just it felt like I could suddenly turn around to the world and say, actually, I'm good enough and you are wrong. All those people that said that. But as um, as fate would have it, it they, they, were, they were quite right. I was rubbish. I wasn't good. And I got into this drama school and, and I failed miserably in my first year and ended up leaving. And so my, my, um, my confidence was crushed so badly because everything that those people had told me, um, I believed then I didn't believe them and proved them wrong. But actually, it turns out they were right. And so if you can imagine, that was like a double kick in the balls. It was a massive slap in the face. And I found myself in a position where I was like, you've got two choices here. You've only got two choices here. You either do something with your life and you find the fear 
and you face the fear or you spend the rest of your life feeling like this. And it was such a dark, lonely space. I decided at that point I would never feel like that again. So when I now, you know, jumping forward to being 48 years old, almost 50, whenever I get that feeling of imposter syndrome, and it's not just in music, it's also, you know, I get a big presenting gig or I'm standing on stage in front of thousands of people with a microphone and no script. You know, I get those moments of what the hell are you doing? You know, should you be here? You know, DJing at uh, Clockstock last year in front of thousands of people in Chelmsford, you know, with, you know, the likes of Seth Fontaine and Brandon Block and Alex P and, you know, and, and amazing DJs that I really look up to. You know, when I get that feeling, I, st- I, I remember that I made a decision. I, I decided with myself that I was never, ever going to feel like I wasn't good enough again. And that's what spurs me on. That's what gives me the determination to say, you've got this. Now just go and do the best you can. You can only do the best you can. And what's been the toughest? So I'm trying to keep up with everything you've done here from DJ, (laughs) production, radio, panto, you mentioned, cooking, TV. What's been the the hardest one that you threw yourself into where you've thought, is this a little bit too far or, you know, you've had to kind of push yourself a bit further to, to be a success? Oh, God, that's such a good question. Do you know what? I think all of them, all of them are tough. I mean, none of it's been easy. It's all of it's been, it's been, you know, I've not, I didn't train in fashion and I threw myself into it. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't train in music and I've thrown myself into it. You know, I I cooked in my dad's restaurant as a kid, but then presented my own cooking shows and, and written cookbooks and whatever. And so, but all of them have been equally as hard. I guess um, music is the newest. Music is the newest thing in my life and I am learning at a rate of knots every single day and I am talking to as many people as possible and I am putting myself in positions to, to, to make sure that I'm absorbing the information because I want to be as good as I possibly can at it. So I guess right now, currently, music is probably the toughest because it's the one area that I know the least amount about but that will change because I'm determined to know everything that I need to know and like everything else that I've done I'm, I'm focused and and I want to be as good as I possibly can and I want to share that with other people. Were there any experiences because I've, I've I always try and put myself in, in this position and think okay if I was going to go and present on radio tomorrow and even you know things I like do in the podcast once you've done the first one when you come to the second you're like there's so much I want to change you know yeah, of course. and be very self reflective and 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 I guess self critical but I think it's yeah. a, a really good trait to have. Was there have you have you ever had any of those like first day experiences almost like first day at school but you know the first time you were on TV for example oh, were there any learnings that you had? Oh my god! Every single every single day, you're like, <laughs> like that. Um, the first, so so when House Look Good Naked got commissioned, which was the, the show probably that, well, would definitely launched my TV career, but the show that I'm probably most famous for. So when that happened, um, we were filming in Notting Hill and it was right at the, um, right at the end of the series, you then filmed the beginning of the show, bizarrely. And it's all the piece to camera. So it's all the intros into the, into the show. It's a brand new concept. And I stood on these steps in Notting Hill with my producer, Colette Foster, who was my exec, but she was also directing that day, and trying to deliver this piece to camera. 
which was something on the lines of, hi everyone, my name's Got Wan, I'm a TV stylist, and today I'm gonna take this woman and transform her, blah, blah, blah. So it was, it was basically that kind of, which I can rattle off within seconds and like kind of nail every single time now with all this experience. However, back then, because I'd had no experience of this, I think we took about 78 takes, which is like unheard of. I mean, it goes down in history as the worst thing ever. PB. Yeah, exactly. It was just absolutely horrific. And so that for me was, was it was like, shit, can I do this or not? But in fact, that if those feelings, when I, when I feel like that, it doesn't deter me. It just makes me way more ambitious. It makes me way more focused. I think, no, I'm not going to get that. And, you know, I, I presented the Sex and the City world premiere film at Leicester Square on the red carpet. There was me with Sarah Jessica Parker and Vivian Westwood and, you know, and, and Patricia Fields and whoever was there. And I remember just standing there and I just ran out of things to say. I just, I was so scared. I was so nervous. I was so in the moment that I basically, every single one of my interviews were completely rubbish because I was just, a, you know, I, I couldn't control it at all. But I walked away from that and thinking, actually, when this happens again, this is what I'm going to do. So going back to what you just said there, when you when you imagine you, you are someone, you always want to do it better the second time over. But you know what? It, that, that for me is every day of my life because I, you know, I do this morning. I've been doing this morning for eight, nine years now twice a week some weeks and you know live television and I always get off of there at the end of the show and I will always talk to my producer I'll always talk to the director and say was that okay we should have changed this we should do this next time and so I still do that now and I'm the same with DJing as soon as I get off stage I talk to my tour manager and go okay that track didn't work or that didn't mix in too well and I lost the crowd slightly there I should have gone vocal there and so but I'm constantly trying to get it better um, I always feel, I guess I always feel like I'm at 20%, but that's not a bad thing because it just makes me way more determined. And with, where do you set those benchmarks from? Is that something inside yourself? Because I know, for example, when I do something I've not done before, I, I always think, who is the best at doing this? Or what's the bar of excellence for this thing I've not done before? And then I try and dissect and understand that right. I was obsessed with who's yeah. done it the best way. That That's just me personally, but yeah. is there... How do you approach that with, with setting those benchmarks? Do you know what? I don't think it's a contemporary. So I don't think I don't think it's another DJ and I don't think it's another presenter that ever does that. I guess I try and imagine how the audience felt, how the crowd felt. And I and that maybe makes me even more critical than I need to be because I'm making assumptions. Um, but I, I, I guess that I, you know, it's really weird because journalists always ask me, you know, kind of, what do you do for a living? You do so many different things. What's your job? And, and I always say to them, you know, I've only got really one job that I do and which is I will always be the waiter in my parents' restaurant and I will always be that person that serves the table and it's just that every single day the tray that I'm holding has something different on it so some days it's fashion some days it's food some days it's music um uh you know it, it can change every it changes every single day and so I always imagine how does my small table of four people in dad's restaurant how do they feel with this experience and I guess that's what that's that's my benchmark it's always imagining could I have done better did I take them on the right journey did they get enough information from me did they enjoy it did they laugh when they were supposed to did they cry when they were supposed to all of those things and because I, I genuinely just want people to enjoy what I do and that sounds a little bit like I've got some kind of worthy complex, but it's not at all. It's just that I do genuinely care what I put out to the world. 
it's actually the complete opposite it's it's not caring about you and your output it's how it's being received and I actually think that's a really interesting take uh, to always think audience first and speaking of audiences a nice segue into isolation nation which <laughs> in lockdown you um uh you did a series of live streams that kind of keep pe- keep people entertained at home and at one point you had 1.2 million people tune into your stream so i want to find out <laughs> how did you get 1.2 mil- million people to tune into anything <laughs> That's it, was, insane. it was it was it was all by accident and so so you know my 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 I guess. Oh God, how do you how do you even explain this? Because if if God, if we knew how to do that, then there'd be so many massive things out there. I, I, number one, I didn't ever go out to do you know such an enormous stream. That was never my intention at all. Uh, and number two, I said years ago, I, I put um, in, in either an interview or a post on Instagram or something. I said, and this is kind of ringing in my head now, but I said, who would have thought that all those years from a very very young age of going to the clubs and the warehouse raves and you know all the all-nighters and you know all this the, all I was doing was just I was just in rehearsals for this part of my life and I guess that's that's what did it because um and I'll, I'll kind of explain that when lockdown happened I really struggled I hated it I had a really terrible time I'm a, I, I have to be around people I've got to be around my friends and my family and I've got to be working and stuff and when we first found out in lockdown that we were going to have all of that taken away um I literally went into a meltdown and I, I I don't like my own company I can't be on my own I don't like having stuff to do and so I went into this panic zone and so I suddenly turned around on Instagram and said right so a lot of you don't know this but I've been DJing for years because up until that point unless you bought a ticket for a gig or a festival or a club and I was playing at night you wouldn't have known I was DJing um and so but then all so 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 i said i said to them if shall i on friday night drop a set online i don't know how we're going to do it i don't know how it works i don't know what i'm going to play but do you want a party and it was just unanimous it was thousands of answers for instagram and so i did it and i did it on my ipad it wasn't plugged into anything it was the ambient microphone from the ipad so it sounded awful and i just dropped this set and we probably had i don't know three four hundred people live watching and it was like oh this is okay and actually this is going to be incredible if we're in this situation for, for ages because I'm number one going to really miss DJing and number two this is going to give me a focus and then you know after a couple of couple of weeks and then and then maybe a month or so later it had become a regular feature and a fixture for people's lockdown that I would do these parties and some weeks I was DJing four nights a week because it was a great focus for me it was an incredible way of me not feeling completely on my own and, and isolated. But I then found out from listening to people, reading their comments and people sending me messages afterwards that there were thousands of people shielding and self-isolating and they were on their own too. And I was like, this is this is something that I need to do. This is a service that I need to do. And and I guess it was a, so it was a combination and back to your question of how do you get 1.2 million people on? So it was a combination of all the years of experience that I'd, 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 I'd um, experienced in the clubs and the raves and the warehouses, all those years, every single time that I stood in front of a laser, every single time that I heard Groove Rider drop 
a baseline every single time that I was there at a massive 12 foot speaker in a warehouse somewhere all of that came into play because I suddenly thought this is the power of music and this is what we can transport people now for a couple of hours out of this absolute hellhole which is this isolation that we're in so that coupled with I guess an honesty of me turning around and saying I'm alone and I need you as much as you need me. And I'm prepared to spend my evening DJing for you and sharing my music and what I love about house music. If you're prepared to, to listen, that's, that's the only transaction that I need. And, and But it is a transaction, it does go both ways. Don't think that I'm being selfless here. I am genuinely getting as much out of this as you are. And I think people saw that and people heard it. And I opened up my kitchen so people suddenly had full view into my home and I was drinking and smoking and just being me. They'd never seen that side of me before because the me that they'd seen had been an edited version on television or, you know, kind of on, on stage with a microphone and a script or an autocue kind of thing. And then all of a sudden people were privy to the real me that I was just as scared just as lonely and I needed a focus just as much as anybody else and it kind of blew up and all of a sudden you know people in the music industry are listening other DJs are listening my friends are tuned in my mum's there listening dancing around the living room with dad you know and it just turned into this massive global rave and we had people in from all over the world and people setting alarms in New Zealand and Australia to wake up for the party um, and it was just a, such a powerful moment in my life. You mentioned the words honesty there, and I think honesty and authenticity, which I know can be big buzzwords, but they they were my biggest takeaways from from that story. And I also looked um, at the post you did recently about uh, plans for a real event, and it wasn't this glitzy, you know, sign up for pre-sale promo video. You were like, listen, got this idea. I haven't quite figured out how we're going to do it. I'm going to be real. <laughs> You're up for it, let me know and we'll figure it out. But I love that and you just don't see enough, enough uh, of that. I think. Oh, you're very kind. You know what? It's it's really interesting because I and I and I have this debate all the time with my management and with well with anyone talking about music in particular now, is that you know, I, I created Isolation Nation. Um, and I absolutely created it, but I don't own it. It doesn't belong to me because your you, your brand only belongs. You, you only have a brand if other people buy into it, if people want it. And so I don't own this brand. Isolation Nation family, they own it. And so I've tried to include them in production all the way through this. And so I've said to them, look, I'm thinking about doing a massive party. Are you up for it? What times work? You know, what kind of, what would you be looking for at this party? What would give you the incentive to come? You know, that all of that stuff. Because at the end of the day, it has to be collaborative because Isolation Nation as a party came out of something which is when we needed community the most. And that will never, ever change. And moving forward, it may not be the same for every project that I do, but for Isolation Nation in particular, it will always be owned by the listener, always, always be owned by the person that's prepared to come and party. And the transaction is, I'll play the music as long as you enjoy it. That that seems like quite a big theme throughout, throughout everything you've you spoke about so far. You've, I think what makes your journey and career so unique is that you've you almost obsess over audience and you're very community first audience first which let me tell you now from working with with a lot of events a lot of people aren't like that especially event promoters so when we spoke to Simon Dunmore at the nighttime economy summit he spoke so well about community and obviously when you look at what Defected have done yeah um, I guess in terms of their output and their um, you know their, their back catalogue but also how they present themselves online 
it's it's so community first and the way that Simon spoke about you know the, the TLC that he'll put into merch for example and he probably doesn't make as much money from it but he wants his merch to be a collectible he wants it to be something that yeah. someone wears in 10 years time he doesn't want the, the logos washing off same with social media he said he still sits there and reads the comments and I'm sure he's yeah. a very busy guy as, as I'm sure you yeah. are but you said the same you you're reading the comments you're listening to people because if you're not doing that you're just broadcasting and not you know, creating any sort of connection or, or, or community. Yeah. I, well, I, I, well, you know, Simon's a massive inspiration to me and I've been fortunate enough to work with him and meet him and chat with him and talk music and, and everything else. And it's it's amazing. And I and I think, yeah, we probably share a similar ethos. You know, it, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because um, we, you go from being a performer to a brand. And when you think about branding and we think about what we are, you there's a certain amount of you're protecting your brand because you want it to be on point. You want it to fit with your ethics and you want it to fit with your, uh, your focus of what you're doing. But actually, if you, if you're just really honest about what your brand is, then I think that you can't really put a foot wrong, but all of this always comes down to the four people at the restaurant, you know, at that table, they're the most important people here, not the chef, not the waiter, not the tray, not the music, you know, not the book, none of that stuff. It's the, the audience. Cause if you don't have an audience, if you don't have a consumer, you don't have a product you don't have a brand now I would be mortified if I lost my brand I'd be mortified because I've worked so hard at it but I also understand that that is down to me always delivering honesty and truth and integrity um, and just trying to be as, as, as good as I can be with all the stuff that I do but making sure first and foremost that that audience is serviced that they get what they need out of this because without them I would be nothing and you actually went on to release Isolation Nation through Defected Records. How yeah. did that come about? Is that a relationship you already had with Simon? or did No, no, not at all. So I, I had no relationship with Simon. I think I'd say, I think, shame. I think I might have sent him a DM at one point going, I really love you and I love your work. Same. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you know, a massive fan of Defected and Glitterbox and all the stuff that they do and a huge fan of, of how they build their DJs and, and, and all that stuff. Anyway, I um, I, got, I got signed to uh, Club Class Management, Surge and Kev, who are incredible, and they'd seen me DJing in lockdown. So prior to that, I had a booking agent where I was going out and DJing and doing stuff, but uh, not a management management. And, and Surge and Kev signed me uh, because they'd seen me online doing Isolation Nation, which, which it sounds bonkers, but they were like, we love what you do, we love what you're about. And, you know, would you be up for it? And I said, yeah, fine, let's do it. And so, and they're really heavily connected in the music industry and I could never have done it on my own. And so it was really down to these two very, very powerful people that have connections with Wares and Simon and all them that are defected and said, look, we should talk, you know, we should do some stuff. And then um, I started doing the Red Nose Rave, which a, a good friend of mine, Emma, who works at Comic Relief. And in fact, we went to university together years ago. I used to live in her, I lived in her child's bed, which sounds really bizarre, but I had nowhere to live and she put me up for months. Anyway, she's one of my best friends and she's really high up at Comic Relief. And I said to her, look, I've got this idea um, for Comic Relief, which is the Red Nose Rave. And I think it will be really good. And I think we can raise some money for you lot. And we can also use, you know, house music to do that. And I think it will be an amazing uh, thing. And we spoke to Defected about it. They got on board and we just formed this relationship. And so from there, then kind of the album comes out and, you know, and, and all that other stuff. And it's a, it's a great relationship. And I feel very, very humbled and very honoured um, that they allow me to work with them, basically. <laughs> 
No, it sounds like a perfect fit, um, you know, just the way that you speak about, um, I guess, yourself as a brand and a business. And it's probably a horrible term to use because I think I don't think you actually, you know, hearing you talk about um, how you treat things like that, you, you definitely don't think of it like that. But I guess in the context of, you know, is it is a career and a business in that sense? You've got Gokwan as the the brand, the person. Um, I think from my perception, just from talking today, it seems like there's not really much of a disconnect, like you are who you are. Is there any difference between the brand and the person? Or is it the um, oh, God, I've never been asked this question. It's a really difficult one. Um, oh. Uh, uh, no, there's not. There, I am. I am who I am. And I've worked really hard on that. And I, daily I work hard on that. I kind of analyse myself and overanalyze myself and, and constantly trying to, to do better and be who I am. And I guess my brand has always been about looking after people. But from a business point of view, you have to separate it because otherwise you just, I think you just drive yourself nuts. And so I need to release myself from my job every now and again, because otherwise every single thing I do would be about the brand, the brand, the brand, the brand. And I think that I need to blow off steam like everyone else. So whereas I think that, yes, my brand is me. And I think, yes, my brand is honest. And I think my we've always, always stuck. And I say we because I've had an amazing team of people around me. Um, we focus really hard on our ethos, really, really hard on making sure that we stay true to what we are and we don't ever try and be anything we're not. So that's the first thing. But I do have to separate myself from that. I have to be Gokwan, not the DJ, Gokwan, not the TV presenter, Gokwan, not the stylist, because otherwise I think that I would just work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I, I know that that would put me in a very early grave. Is there an element of, of being authentic online, but you have to hold something back for you behind closed doors? You know, there's there's almost like a, a pressure at the minute for anyone in the, the public eye to document absolutely everything. And is, yeah. do you feel you need to hold a bit back? Yeah, I do. You know, I, I've, I've got a couple of strict rules. And so actually during lockdown was the first time I opened up my house. I've always been very, not secretive, but always been private about this is my home and this is my safe space and this is where I need to be because everything else I do is public. Um, and so so then, then of course, lockdown happened and I opened up the kitchen with isolation nation and suddenly the world is looking in and they can see where I live and see what I drink and see how I smoke and, you know, all of those things. Um, but there are certain things I, I try not to, I, I won't ever talk about personal issues, partners. Uh, I, you know, I, I had no desire to have a massive, big, bougie, you know, wedding in the public eye type thing. That for me is really private. And I've never spoken about relationships to the press. And also I try, you know, I try to protect my friends and family as much as I can. I mean, I talk about my family a lot and I tell stories about us, you know, growing up and stuff, but actually it's very much the stuff that I know that I can talk about. Everything else is, everything else is, um, I try and keep away. And in fact, in 2019, I wrote my autobiography and the, the publishers came to me and said, you know, are you up for doing this? And my agent, and I said to my agent, um, do you know what? I'm just going to keep this contract. I'm not going to sign it. And it sat on my desk. And I, um, my assistant at the time had gone home on the Friday night and I went down to my office 
and I started writing and it was a chapter, it was the chapter about my anorexia. I'd never really discussed it with anyone before. The public really didn't know about it. My family, I hadn't spoken to my family about it. And so, and I, oh, for three days I wrote this, this chapter. It was the hardest chapter, the hardest thing probably I'll ever have to do in my life. And I write, started writing this and I decided, oh, actually, maybe I can write this book. Maybe I can tell my story. And so I wrote it, wrote it, wrote it, wrote it, wrote it. And then I still hadn't signed the contract for it. And then I sent uh, a manuscript, the, the finished manuscript before it went to publication to my family and said, look, read this. If you, if there's a single thing in there, a, a word, a letter, uh, bad grammar, because I'm terrible at grammar, bad grammar, if there's anything in this that, that you, you think that that shouldn't get published, you don't need to tell me why. You don't tell me what it is. You just say, don't publish this. And so, and and they didn't, they, they, they kind of gave me their blessing, but that's kind of how private I have been, is that I, I for me, that's really important. I don't know why I told you that. I've just told you that. <laughs> you have this thing, you have this ability, Sean, for me to open up, which is, which is one of the greatest skills in the world. Oh, no, thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, when it comes to things like social media then, which I guess is mm. the biggest lens and, and scope that people could, could look at your life through, do you manage your own social media? Is that a conversation yeah. you have to have with your team? Is that something that's really important to you? Yeah, but it's, it's, I mean, you've only got to look at every single one of my posts. <laughs> I post the, the bad spelling, the, you know, the mundane pictures of my dog. Yeah, no, it's, you know what? It's, it's all me. It's all me. I don't think I, you know, I've never had a PR. Uh, ever. I mean, I've had a PR for a job, but I've never had a PR as in a, in a full-time employment. I do all my own social media because at the end of the day, this is me. You know, if people have bought into me, they want me. And and so that for me, that honesty, that level of honesty is really, really important. Occasionally, the wonderful Chris, you can see his feet just there. The wonderful Chris will have to send out posts and stuff because I'm busy or doing stuff. But we've always gone over it together. And so, but yeah, because it, it is honest, isn't it? And also social media is such a weird thing. It's new. You know, people don't realise that. But this is a new thing to do is that you are constantly telling people what you're eating you know when you've been for a poo when you you know when you're walking down the street who you're talking to what you're wearing you know what you've put on your desk you know we just we just put everything out there now don't we so it's a new concept um and so for me if I gave that to somebody else to do I think I'd have the worst anxiety because I, I would be effectively giving somebody um a magnifying glass to my world and I'm not too sure I'd be able to cope with that. Whereas if I do it, I can manage what goes out there. As boring and as badly spelt as every single post is. I read an article from um, uh, Annie Mack recently, and she was talking about um, social media. And I think, you know, you've kind of got to understand how to use it and when to draw the line. But she spoke about, she was out with the sons and they were kind of in building this trench and kind of playing games. And she said she caught herself thinking about the caption for the post that she could post when she took the photo and I was like oh, I do that all the time and that's so scary that you can't be in the moment of that moment without yeah. thinking how you can tell that in the best way online because you know if it didn't happen on Instagram then yeah. it didn't happen at all but that, that was quite a a big big uh, realization for yeah. me and I ca I've caught myself doing that quite a few times I've, ever since as well. I think I'm the reverse of that, where I was like, oh, fuck, I should have taken a picture of that. I should have documented that. I'm constantly, I'm constantly forgetting. And I get, and I get slight social, uh, social media envy 
of my contemporaries that are really good at, you know, posting up, you know, at the right time, what they're doing. And whereas, I mean, half of the pictures of me, I mean, there's only one angle that I can do anyway. And (laughs) the amount of times I'm just like, shit, I shouldn't have posted that. And I just forget. And so I'm really clumsy with it. But I think that, again, is about being honest, isn't it? It's an honest portrayal of this is this is genuine me, my life. This is this is what I'm doing right now, opposed to, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm good enough. Maybe I need to go to social media classes. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. And with all you know, you, you, with TikTok popping up and all these different platforms, do you have no. any pressure from yourself to be you know on wherever all of the kids are? I, are you just happy where you are? I mean, but everyone's telling me, yeah, you should do TikTok and you should be DJing on Twitch and you should be doing this, that and the other. And I just think to myself, I haven't got enough time at the moment to do everything that I've got to do. I'm knackered and I I constantly am feeling that I'm behind on my life, that I can't add any more stuff to it. Because if I've got to be, you know, running a job, running a business, you know, working all weekend DJing, filming all week, looking after a dog, looking after a home, my family, my friends, and social media, and then add TikTok to it, and constantly then have to be dancing to a Britney track. I can't, don't think, I just don't think I have enough time to do it. And I also think there's an element of, you don't have to do everything at the same time, if that makes sense. Like, you, like yeah. your Instagram, for example, you've got a really engaged audience, they know who you are, you've got a kind of trust and in that kind of dialogue and community so you know double down on that I don't think you should then dilute it by always trying to be on on YouTube and TikTok and Twitter yeah, and Reddit and all of that. that Sean but then what happens in a year's time when all of a sudden you know Instagram implodes on itself and then everyone <laughs> goes over to TikTok I mean that's what kind of what happened with Twitter wasn't it you know Instagram came up and and Twitter because prior to that Twitter was the space to be on and that's kind of what you did and so may, maybe this is just a getting old thing Sean maybe maybe we're just getting really really Oh, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but uh, there's um, uh, where did I hear this recently? I was at, at a uh, Brighton Music conference last week, and then um, w- we were talking on a panel about the power of social media, and you know, TikTok is the the one that comes on everyone's mind. And I think you've got a, point there, a good point in there, and that uh, I guess we're seeing what's happening with Instagram. We're kind of seeing what happened with Facebook, where that that, that booms. That was a way people could you know connect with their favorite artists and vice versa. Then that kind of hit a tipping point, oversaturated, overly advertised, and then Instagram came along. And in the beginning, that was just younger people on it. You know, my mum wasn't on Instagram, and then a few you know it only takes a year or so before yeah. the rest of society catches up. And I guess there's a question mark with TikTok whether that's a, a similar infancy stage where the kids are on it now, but you know in a year's time is that what we're going to be? Yeah. You know, communicating everything through I think probably but also as well isn't there something really beautiful about being quite ignorant about that which is you know I I mean I love I love I love social media I use it a lot and everything else but there's nothing quite like the human touch there's nothing quite like being out there with the public and talking to them and doing that so in my mind I think to myself you know what if I don't keep up with it all it's kind of all right because as long as I still enjoy and want to be at the festivals and the parties and in the clubs and being physically with people. As long as I can tell people where I'm going to be and if you want to come along, come along. As long as I can do that, I think that's enough for me. I don't have a burning desire to be the biggest TikToker or whatever you call them. Um, you know, I don't. I don't have any of that stuff. And I, equally, I didn't have the biggest. I didn't have. I didn't have any desire to be. You know, for Isolation Nation to be so enormous and to have so many listeners. It kind of just happened organically. It was just one of those things. And I think there's something 
something really beautiful about that ignorance. There's something that's really, really freeing about it because that means you just get on and do what you really want to do. You know, I, I, I just want to, I want to make decent TV programs. I want to talk about fashion. I want to DJ for people. I want to cook them dinner. I want to look after them and make sure they feel good about themselves. And as long as that's happening, I'm kind of all right. And whatever platform that is, it doesn't really bother me because I can go to bed that night thinking, actually, you did a good job today. You were all right. And when you look back and reflect on on, on all of the above and, and everything you've done um, over the past few decades, I'm really keen and intrigued to know what's, what is it about you that's made it such a unique story and such a, a unique success? So, for example, is there one habit that you have to live by or that you've stuck to for so many years that's that's got you to where you are? I think uh, I think it's about being honest. I really do. I think it's about just being as true to yourself as possible. And it kind of goes back to that really frightened, fat, gay, mixed race boy at school, um, is that for, for all, the, all, the, all the reasons that I thought that I would amount to nothing, for all, for all those, for every single time I got told that, um, they're all the things that make me who I am now. You know, I'm, 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 I'm humble to those things. I am grateful to those things now. And that's the honesty that it comes from because I don't ever not want to be that really frightened, fat gay boy because he was really special and amazing. He just didn't realise it for a long, long time. And so it's that honesty, I think. And as long as I can let my audience know that and say, this is just who I am, and you are just as good. Whoever you are, you are just as good, regardless of how you feel right now, regardless of what you've been told, regardless of what you're going through. You can be just, you're just as good then. And I think because of that, that that may have something to do with, with me being around for so long, or maybe I've just been really fucking lucky, Sean. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> was, was there ever a, a kind of sliding doors moment? Do you, when you look back, do you think, God, if that moment didn't happen, I wouldn't be where I am now, or do you think it would have happened regardless? Uh, yeah, I've had several of those actually. I, I kind of, I, I, I guess I believe in fate really. That you know, had I, had I not left drama school feeling like such a failure, then I wouldn't ever have taken the job in the recruitment agency. And had I not hated that and decided that I couldn't do it, but I still had to pay my bills, I would never have taken that job in that restaurant as a waiter. If I'd not taken that job in that restaurant as a waiter, I never would have met that person who introduced me to that person in makeup. And so then had I not bullshitted my way into Carol's agency, I wouldn't then have become a stylist. And if I wasn't ever a stylist, I would never have been on TV. If I wasn't on TV, I never would have had a platform to do all the stuff that I've done you know, all the charity work and raising money and stuff. And then, you know, and had I not gone to that rave when I shouldn't have done because I was, because it was, you know, halfway around the other part of the country and I should, probably should have been at college. Had I not gone to that rave, then I wouldn't be standing in Glastonbury this year, playing out, you know, music to people and letting them feel the same way I felt when I was at that rave. And so all of those, for all those reasons, you know, I, I do believe every single experience that we go through, how awful or traumatising or, you know, brilliant. What when they, you've got to put that to good if you possibly can. You've got to try and find something because otherwise, I think we'd just go nuts. And is, is, when you look back, so I know we spoke earlier on about kind of you know being self-critical and reflecting on on those you know tiny one percent improvements each day. Is there anything that you change? Are you very happy that you've done it in that way? Like, is there anything that you've you've regretted a decision or? 
Oh, God. I try not to have regrets. We, we all have them, if we're really honest, but I try not to have regrets. Um, I, I'm going to say no, because if I, because I've got to be grateful for what I've got right now. I've got to be grateful because I'm in a, you know, a really privileged position. I, you know, I do, I, I go to work every day and I really get excited about going to work and I love what I do and I love the people I'm around. And would I make changes to that? Of course I would. You know, I would add things to it. I'd take probably certain things away. Um, but I, if I changed anything, then would you be changing the matrix? And if you're changing the matrix, then would I then be happier or, or not as happy? So I guess maybe it's looking forward opposed to looking backwards. Yeah. And you said you're, you're loving what you're, you're doing at the moment and you, you sound really motivated. What's your North Star at the moment? What's your... Oh. Get you out of bed every day. Do you know what? I, I, I really... I, I'm so excited about this summer. I'm so excited about the gigs that I've got coming up. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited about the fear and the nervousness that I'm going to have playing some of those enormous gigs. Um, but but so that's kind of my motivation at the moment is fear probably that I'm looking forward to that fear because it's going to push me as hard as I possibly can and and I'm I'm so grateful I'm so excited that that people are giving me the opportunity promoters are giving me the opportunity that they they're seeing that I can do my job you know because it's taken a while when I first started DJing online oh my god when I first started DJing this is a true story I don't think I've ever said this out loud so when I first <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's making me laugh because it's so bad. <laughs> when, I first, when I first started DJing online, oh my God, it's made me cry with embarrassment. Tearing <laughs> up with embarrassment. Suspense is killing me. So when I first started DJing online um, during lockdown, and I think it was, I think it was a bank holiday. And I was on, by which time I'd bought Scarlet and I was putting it through the interface. And so it was kind of, it was, it was, I knew it was sounding all right. So I had all the gear, it was done. And I'm dropping the set and I'm really enjoying it. I've got a couple of vodkas in me and I'm smoking a cigarette. And I noticed a comment come up on the box going, that's not you DJing. That's you. That's just you plugging in a, a, a playlist. That's not you DJing. And I was, I was, and it was from the, thousands I mean we're talking like 30 40 50,000 comments in a set people don't stop talking and I'm trying to read them all as I'm DJ but out of all of those 30,000 amazing comments of people saying thank you for this I love this track and I'm dancing in my kitchen right now and you know we've got hundreds of thousands of people listening and I see this one comment of somebody basically challenging me to say that I'm not DJing and I get the iPad and I point it right down to the decks and I start pulling out all the tricks and I'm kind of looping. I'm, I'm basically, I'm just doing anything I possibly can to show people and to the point where I started making massive mistakes on purpose so people knew that it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was, because I was so upset that they could turn around and go, well, hold on a second, you can't DJ. This is just, this is a fraud. This is a fake kind of thing. And so just jumping back to what you just said, that, you know, I'm so grateful that now, you know, in, in 2022, that promote 
promoters, of massive, massive parties and events and stuff, of, of, of can, are trusting me with their audience because, like we said earlier on, the audience is the most important thing. For a promoter, their audience is the most important thing. And so if they're trusting me with them and me entertaining them and playing out the set, that's a massive amount of trust is for me to do that. And so I'm, so I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. <laughs> Again, I don't know why I've told you that, Sean. You've got the terrible, terrible effect on me. <laughs> well, you're, make, you're making me blush. <laughs> uh, honestly, thank you so much for for really opening up and and sharing your journey and you know your your secrets of success and everything that's really got to where you are today this podcast for me is you know it's it's, again it's it's great to hear the feedback for me it's so self-indulgent because I just get to sit here and listen to incredible people and get to take bits from everyone of of how they've done it and yeah it's just been so so inspiring listening to you today so thank you for taking the time out